Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 21. And uh, we are going to be covering more than two chapters today. So I need a sip of water first. And before we go anywhere, let's pray. Father, we quiet our hearts in your presence. We do seek that you would glorify yourself in the preaching of your word this morning. We ask that you, by your spirit, would work in our hearts. I pray that we would hear from you. That we would understand you better. Understand better how you have created us and what you have called us to. I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that our eyes would be fixed on you. That we would seek you diligently in your word. And I pray that you would show yourself to us even this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Exodus chapter 21. And we're going to go all the way through uh, 23 and verse 9. And if you have been reading in your devotions in the book of Exodus, which is what we've been recommending, you will know that uh, we have quite a few different topics. And it's very hard to outline a passage like this, um, given the, the large number of topics that are discussed and the way they're discussed and how it fits into the book thus far. But uh, what I want to what I want to do before we dive into here is I want to recall what's gone on in the book of Exodus thus far. Not in detail, but I want us to remember how we got where we are because we didn't just open up to Exodus chapter 21 and decide to preach on this passage. We did chapter 20 before that and chapter 19 before that and we have worked our way through. And so what has God done with the people of Israel? Well, 400 years ago plus, they were taken down into uh, the land of Egypt and they were honored guests uh, under the time of uh, Joseph and that was during the days of Jacob. Those days have ended and they have passed long since. And so they passed into slavery and they entered into a period of some hundreds of years of slavery. Um, Don't know if it was a full 400 years in slavery, but nevertheless, they were in slavery. They were crying out to God and God heard their cry and he called his messenger Moses and sent him to them to uh, to preach to them and to declare to Pharaoh that that uh, Pharaoh was supposed to let the people go. And so that was what was going on. And then, of course, you have this big clash between God and Pharaoh himself, and that never fares well when you clash with God. By the way, you're going to come out on the losing side. And sure enough, no surprise, Pharaoh comes out on the losing side there, and God's name is glorified, and God's people are set free from the land of Egypt. And uh, and they are... Uh, they've gone across the sea and they're out into the wilderness. They're on their own. And uh, Pharaoh's been destroyed and Pharaoh's army's been destroyed and Pharaoh's, uh, all of the Egyptian economy, etc., has been decimated. And, and they have been brought out here, but they haven't been just set free and said, okay, you're welcome and uh, have fun. But God is now giving them laws. And he, he made covenant with them and he brought them to the Mount Sinai and he has given them the Ten Commandments and, and he's, he's given them instruction on how covenant people are to live before God. And we have that summarized in the Ten Commandments, and we spent some time going through those. And then now he continues on, and he's talking about, okay, you are in the desert right now. You're not always going to be in the desert. The goal is that you're going to go into the promised land. You're going to move into that land, and you're going to set up a new society. 
And when you set up this new society, what are the laws going to be like? And what's your nation going to be like? And what are the people going to be like? And what does justice look like in this new land? And so that brings us to chapter 21. And so chapter 21 through uh, 23 and verse 9 is what we're going to cover today. And rather than go through it verse by verse, you can read through that. Uh, what I did is I, I, I broke it up into laws that were similar in some ways, either, either with their penalty, with our second point here about capital punishment, or with basic jurisprudence, how you set up laws and how what do you expect of your people in this new land you are the people of god the covenant people of god you're going to be uh, priests and so how, how are you going to portray god to the world by the way you live in your society and uh, and so in our point our first point here we're going to look at basic jurisprudence and and so what i've done this is by no means the verses that you have uh, that we're going to cover today are by no means all the verses in this entire section they are exemplary of the verses that are there Okay, and so I want to uh, hit them thematically, and I've tried to pick the ones that are most exemplary of that topic. So first of all, in basic jurisprudence, how do you deal with negligence? Well, you have you have laws like the one given in chapter 21 and verse 28, and this will make sense. This is uh, this is not a hard law. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh not uh, be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Okay, they didn't have anything to do with this. They didn't they didn't cause it Um, in this situation. It was just an ox that gored a person to death. That's a terribly sad thing. You kill the ox and you deal with it. Um, But he doesn't stop there. Look back at uh, um, verses 18 and 19 there. Uh, You have another situation where um, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, so they get in a fight for one reason or another, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, meaning he's adequately recovered to be out and about, then he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So you pay for the guy's loss of time at work, you pay for the doctor, etc. So you, you have uh, basic situations like that where... It's, stuff just happens and someone gets wronged. And how do you deal with that? Well, you deal with it in different ways. And, uh, and so they have basic laws like that. And they kind of go on in, uh, along that fashion. So you have laws regarding negligence and how you rectify that situation. But you also have laws that deal with theft. For example, look at 22 and verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. How do you deal with theft? How do you punish theft? Well, oxen are relatively valuable and sheep are relatively valuable. And so um, in, in other laws, you would repay double for what you stole. But in these, because they're exceptionally value, you're going to pay valuable. You're going to pay five times in restitution or four times in restitution, whether for an ox or for a sheep. And so how do you make things right when someone breaks a law? How, do you, how far do you punish them? Do you kill a guy for stealing? Do you cut off a guy's hand for stealing? No, what you do is you make him pay in return five oxen or four sheep as, uh, as is given there. You have other similar laws like that. How do you deal with the breaking of various laws? You have also laws regarding justice and mercy. So a look at ch- uh, chapter 22 and verses 25 through 27. You'll have an example here. How do you deal with mercy and justice? If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. You got a poor person borrowing money from a rich person, loan him the money, but don't charge him interest. If ever, uh, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, 
You shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So this person's uh, so poor that all he has to offer is his jacket in, in, uh, in security for this, this uh, uh, loan that he's making. Well, if, if the guy is so poor that he has to offer his jacket uh, for, the, for the money that he's borrowed, let him have the jacket. Let him have the jacket. He's going to need it to sleep. He's going to need it to live his life. And so be merciful to him. Okay, don't be, don't be, uh, uh, don't have a hard heart towards your people because God is compassionate and he will hear. Uh, In a a similar fashion, look at 23 and verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, you see your enemy's donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden. You'd be tempted to, you know, guy kind of deserves it, you know. That guy's a jerk anyway, and he's always giving me a hard time, and here I see his donkey struggling. <laughs> you know, stinks to be that guy. No. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, it's struggling, it's dying, it's being crushed, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So you rescue him. You help him. So you help your neighbor, even though he's you know, mean to you or whatever. Be, be kind and deal justly and be merciful in your society. Well, so these are just basic laws of how you conduct society. But, but Israel was not like any other society. Their laws also governed how they were to worship God since there was a, a nation under God and it was directed towards worshiping God. And so you have even laws regarding how to worship. And so chapter 22 and uh, verses 28 through 30 there, you see, uh, you see laws regarding how to worship. They're setting up a new society. What should this look like? Well, verse 28 of chapter 22, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. So worship is to be a built-in part of this uh, new nation, the laws that they're setting up. This is how they're supposed to proceed. And we've dealt with um, uh, dealing with, we talked about first fruits before and, and firstborn and all that kind of stuff, and we'll definitely get to hit on that again. But basically what's happening is these there, there are laws included in the section that are just designed to tell them how to function as a nation. How do you deal with infringements of the law? How do you deal when an accident happens? Do you kill everyone involved in the accident? Do you make them pay a million dollars? How do you deal when an accident happens? How do you deal with justice and and even worship? And so that's that first part there. They're just setting up basics about how their society is to be worked. And you see a lot of those laws based in in, uh, are located in these in these two and a half chapters. But our next section may catch your eye a little bit more, and that's the section about capital punishment. These are various kinds of crimes, but the penalty for each of these is death. Okay, and I, I want us to think about these. And, and uh, the first one probably will, uh, will raise the least um, you know, question in our minds. Look at chapter 21 and verse 12 regarding homicide. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. All right, so murder results in the penalty of you being put to death. God has given that, uh, that instruction to this nation that the government holds the, the sword and they don't, they don't hold it for no reason. And so when, when there's a murder, the murderer 
is, is to be to have his life taken. He shall surely be put to death here in verse 12. But it goes even farther than that because when we talked about our ox earlier uh, and the goring, look at verse 29 of chapter 21. It has to do even with negligent, certain kinds of negligent homicide. So 21, 29, but if the ox, remember this ox that gored, if this ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also also shall be put to death because he recklessly endangered the lives of other people around. And so you've got this ox. Well, if it just happened out of the blue, this ox gores and kills somebody, that's terrible, but it's not your fault. But if it's been accustomed to goring, if it's done this kind of thing in the past, and, and you know that you need to keep this thing tied up or locked up or need to kill it, and you don't do those things, and it goes and gores somebody, that's on you. So the ox gets killed, and so do you as the owner. And so certain kinds of negligent homicide would result in capital punishment. They were to be put to death. Well, here, let's, uh, let's raise some eyebrows a little bit. 21, verse, uh, let's do 17 first. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Wowzers. I don't think I read that wrong. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Well, verse 15 makes more sense. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Even that is stronger than our, obviously our society would allow. But what, what is he doing here? What's he setting up and giving these laws? He's trying to help them understand, I really do mean the Ten Commandments. I really did mean you shall honor your father and mother. And in, in, in the Ten Commandments, when he talks about that, he said, so that, you know, you will live long in the land. Well, you do the opposite. You're not going to live long in the land. God, is, God is, is very desirous by the laws that he has set up that, that, that children honor their parents and that even adult children honor their parents. So we don't get to curse. We don't get to insult our parents, regardless of how old we are or how wrong we think they are. We certainly don't get to strike them. In many of our families, that wouldn't go well anyway, just because of immediate retaliation, regardless of how old we think we are or how mature we think we are. I have a healthy fear of my dad. (laughs) And I have a healthy fear of the Lord, and he's trying to build this into society so that society would have that same kind of respect for family. And so that would be capital punishment for assaulting or even cursing father or mother. And then the next one, let's look at 21 and verse 16, and we'll see that the, uh, the, the penalty for kidnapping or for human trafficking was also death. Look at verse 16 of chapter 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. You will lose your life if you do such a thing. You will lose your life. What a deterrent. What a deterrent in our day and age. And, and what are we missing in our society that, that, that we don't act this way? The penalty is so low. And we think, yeah, it's a big deal. Is it a big deal? You might be on death row for 35 years and live out, you know, a long and, bar, you know, the chained up life essentially behind bars. God puts it together in a different way. Whoever steals a man, sells him, anyone found a possession of him shall be put to death. That would put an end to human trafficking. That would put an end to kidnapping. And it goes on. Look at uh, chapter 22, verse 18 through 20. 
Again, on the same topic of the, the, the penalty for breaking these laws is that you be put to death. Chapter 22, 18 through 20. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Those are not disconnected laws. You can see in verse 18, 19, and 20 that the language regarding the person being put to death gets stronger and stronger as it goes. It's trying to make a very strong point that you will die for doing these things, and they are not disconnected things. Each of these things, sorcery and bestiality and idolatry, were connected with the worship of false gods. This wasn't just a random idea that someone decided to do this thing or that thing. This was connected with worship and worshiping these false gods, and it would lead to all kinds of perversions. And anyone who practices that stuff, anyone who goes that direction, should be put to death, should surely be put to death, will lose their life. And so God is built right into the fabric of this, of this society that there will be an honoring of God that will happen. It will be a basic part of the fabric of, of this society of the nation of Israel. They will honor God. And they will not allow those in their midst to pursue false gods. You would be put to death for sorcery, bestiality, idolatry. Next, for mistreating sojourners, widows, and orphans. Look at chapter 22, verses 21 through 24. Now this one, uh, maybe, maybe you didn't uh, notice it the first time you read through it. 21 through 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Okay, straightforward. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You don't mistreat widows and orphans or sojourners. This is to be a nation founded upon mercy. As a real quick aside, what is a sojourner? What's a sojourner? Think in your mind what that word, we don't use that word very often, but but this passage does not have to do with our current refugee situation in the United States. I did a quick study, quick, this word for sojourner occurs 93 times in the Old Testament, 93. So how quickly can you, (laughs) I went through it and in my rough estimation, about 70 or 80% of the time, it designates the religious uh, inclinations of this person. About the 20 or 30% of the time that it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't designate what their religious affiliation is of any kind. But the vast majority of times it does. And every time it mentions their religion, they are followers of Yahweh. Every time religion is mentioned, they are worshipers of Yahweh. That's not our current refugee situation. These verses don't apply to that situation. I'm tempted to talk more on that topic, and I'm sure it'll come up again in Exodus, but, but we will move on. So... That's our our first two basic categories, basic jurisprudence. How do you set up the nation? How does it work? How do the laws work? And then capital punishment, the things for which you will lose your life if you break those laws. And then we will move on, lest lest you thought I was trying to dodge the hard stuff to get to the real easy stuff. I, I do it exactly the opposite, all right? So the hard passages, the stuff at the end, the hard passages, because you probably noticed um, that there are some hard passages in here. Even as we glance through 
And if you read above or below some of the verses we hit, you'll see that there are some hard passages here. And so I want to start with a law regarding curbing retribution. It's a, it's a, a law that's referred to in the New Testament. Uh, and we want to talk about what exactly it means in this context. Look at chapter 21. And uh, I'm not skipping the first two paragraphs. Don't you worry. We will get to those. Chapter 21, 20, uh, 22 through 25, that paragraph there. When men strive together... 21, 22 through 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, you've heard this passage, and most of us are familiar with it. And the reason we're familiar with it is because Jesus talks about it. So we're going to get to Matthew chapter 5 in just a moment, but I want to talk a little bit about what this passage means and doesn't mean. It's about curbing retribution. It's about the fact that the punishment for breaking a law should fit the crime. The punishment should fit the crime. You may read this and you think eye for eye. Oh, that's very harsh. Hand for hand, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, wound for wound, life for life. It sounds harsh, but it's not harsh. Think about this. If someone injures you in a certain way, what's your natural response to injure them back? Especially for men, right? If, if you think someone, you know, if someone walked up and decked you, what would you do? Your response would be to deck them back, preferably twice, Right? And that's the key. Would you want to assess how badly am I hurt? He, well, he didn't knock me out, so I'm not going to try and knock him out. So I'm, okay, that was about right. Is that what we're going to do? That's not what we're going to do. He hits me, man, whack, we're going to try and knock him out, right? We're going to try and bust some teeth. We're going to try, we're going to up the ante. We're going to up the ante. This law is designed to curb that, that re- retribution, that natural response. We are not upping the ante. What this law is saying is, You have been injured to this degree. The penalty will be to that degree and not above. We don't want this to escalate into a feud. We don't want to get jumped later on because he punched me and I knocked him out and then later he hits me with a pipe and then later I shoot him. We're trying to curb that stuff, so we're curbing retribution. There's a basic law of Bible study, by the way, that, that you interpret a passage literally... Unless you're given reason to interpret it otherwise. Okay, that's a basic hermeneutical principle. We don't interpret all of the Bible literally because a lot of passages have indications within those passages that they're to be interpreted some other way. Whether it's poetry or whether it's imagery or whether it's hyperbole, overstatement or understatement. Right? That's a basic law is that you interpret it literally unless you're given some other reason. And I believe in this passage we are given other reason. Do you think they applied this literally? When you think through Old Testament history, and I know you're all scrolling because you've got it all memorized and you're going really fast, do do you ever see it fulfilled literally? Well, there might maybe be one passage in which it was fulfilled literally. But let's look at the next verse. So we're we're in chapter 21, 22 through 25. Look at 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it. Okay, so we have an eye situation. He lost an eye. What shall we do? Does the master lose his eye? 
he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. Okay, so he got his freedom, but he didn't get to gouge the eye out of his master. Okay, well, look at verse 27. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So he didn't knock out the master's tooth. Which, which would you rather have, by the way, if you were in slavery and you lost a tooth? Would you just, you know, give up your, your future freedom for the chance to knock out the master's tooth? I mean, maybe in the heat of the moment, you might, without thinking, do such a thing. The slave gets the, the better end of the deal. It's a, it's, the punishment fits the crime. He was violent. He struck you. He doesn't get to do that. You're free. You're free to go. So he's curbing. He's curbing retribution. And then uh, look at Matthew. I'm, uh, you, you can turn there if you want. Matthew chapter 5, verse 40, uh, 38. I'm going to read this just very briefly. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is in the passage where Jesus is giving further thoughts. He's, he's telling you what these passages really mean. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He says, remember that law of retribution that limited how strongly you could respond to an attack upon you? They weren't saying you had to, res- to respond that strongly. Someone hits you on the right cheek. By the way, if you think about it, how would someone hit your right cheek? My, now, my wife's left-handed, so that, you know, that could work out. How would someone hit you on the right cheek? With a backhand. It's an insult. They didn't assault you. They insulted you. Why not just let that go, Jesus says? Why not just let it go? You, you don't have to respond. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye, but that wasn't saying you are required to respond eye for eye. It's putting a cap, not a command on how we respond. Curbing retribution. So that's the law given to curb retribution, to stop feuds from getting out of control. Next one. Chapter 22, verses 16 through 17. I'll I'll cover this one more quickly. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Combating seduction. Seduction. This, This young woman was talked into this action. She was persuaded to be involved in this immorality. This is not a situation of, of physical sexual assault. It's not what we're talking about. He's talking about that she was, she was, uh, she was seduced. And so she participated. And, and you look at it and you think, what, how does this fit in with the others? I mean, it's kind of talking about property uh, in the passage before and all that kind of stuff. And how does this work? And, and I do, I, this is not demeaning or degrading to the young woman. But let's think about what is being set up in this passage. Here's a situation where a young, unmarried, and unengaged woman, they use a different word for a married woman or an engaged woman. So she's unmarried, she's unengaged, unattached. She's allowed herself to be convinced to commit immorality with a man. And so what that would mean is she would very likely never be able to get married after that or certainly not be able to get married well after that. Okay, she's... she's, she's not as eligible because of what she has done. In fact, she would have brought shame upon her family because of what she did. And not only would she have brought shame upon her family, 
But she's, she's put her family in a situation where now, since she's probably not going to be able to get married or at least not get married well, she's going to become a financial drain and burden on the family. She's going to be in the house probably for the rest of her life under her dad's roof. And so, so her family would be responsible for feeding her when they wouldn't have otherwise. And there's more to that. This bride price, by the way, it's not mentioned often in the Bible, just a few times, the idea of a bride price. So it's not real spelled out, very clear. But a bride price should be paid in order for the young man to, to marry the young woman. And so the, the, the family's name has been brought under attack. They have been put in financial distress because they can't marry her off well or possibly even marry her off at all. And the bride price that would normally come from marrying off a daughter is not going to happen. And so this is all harm that's been brought upon the entire family because of this young woman's agreeing to go with this young man. Okay? How does God rectify that? How does he rectify it? He says, well, the young man who seduced her is to pay the bride price and marry her. So he has committed to marry her by doing this. And he pays the bride price unless the dad says, no, you scoundrel. In which case you pay the bride price and she's going to live with her family. So you removed... You've removed the financial difficulty that was that, that her family came under. You've protected her name and her family's name because now she's going to get married. Or you've protected her from this guy who may be some kind of a predator or otherwise a bad guy. If the dad says, you know, I don't want to give my daughter to you. Sorry, you're, you're not a good guy. I don't trust you with my daughter. So you're going to pay the money and I'll keep her right here safe with me. And so the family is protected. And the daughter is protected. It's, it's a protection. And it's to curb, to combat, to, to reduce the idea of seduction and premarital uh, sexual involvement. That's what's going on here. God is protecting the family. He's protecting the young woman. Imagine the culture where this is the law. Do you think young men would be running around trying to find one-night stands? No. Do you think young women would be very likely to be talked into it? No. Purity would be maintained. Morality would be maintained. God is not, he's doing exactly the opposite of demeaning this young woman. He is protecting her in the ways I've already talked about and by creating an entire society that encourages her protection. So God's law is intended to combat Seduction and and uh, this would be. Can you imagine? I, I, and again, I don't know what the bride price was, but uh, let's say it's the the price of an average wedding. What's that price? I don't know. Let's say I, I've seen wildly contradictory reports. I tried to look it up and Google totally failed me. But let's say fifteen grand. Fair? You know, ballpark fifteen grand. You ready to write that check? Ready to make that payment? I think it would curb young men who otherwise think they are uncontrollable in their sexual urges. This is a powerful law against this kind of immorality. Now let's go to the tough ones. Look at chapter 21. Laws governing slavery. Governing slavery. Chapter 21, verses 2 through 6. 
When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, probably not in that order, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Now, slavery had been part of Israel's reality for 400 years. They've been, they've been free for all of three months and we're having a conversation about going back to it. First of all, that should strike you. That should strike us for how we want to go back to the old way of life, the things we're used to, even though they were painful, even though they were destructive, it's just comfortable because I'm used to it, right? So they, they, they were talking about going back to it, right? But there are some systemic differences, some clear differences between the slavery that's talked about here in 21 and the slavery that they were under when they were in Egypt and the slavery that we have in our minds when we think about our history as a nation. There's a vast difference between those two kinds of slavery. First of all, this slavery has a limited term of service. Six years and you're set free. So limited term. It's not lifetime. You've, you're, your whole family and, and posterity are not committed to it. It's a limited term of service. Six years, go free on the seventh year. This slavery, by the way, is, is also most likely what's known as debt slavery as opposed to chattel slavery. Okay, chattel slavery means you own the person and can do with them whatever you will. Debt slavery is a, is a different situation. Debt, uh, chattel slavery is more what we have in mind when we, when we think about uh, our, our national history. We think of chattel slavery, and that's what's going on there. That is not what is discussed in 21. That's more like what was going on in Egypt, right? But regarding debt slavery, a person would enter into debt slavery as a means of paying their debts or simply as a means of survival for the very poor. So if you fell on very hard times and you had a little plot of land and it got destroyed or, you know, you did some bad deals and lost everything, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? There's not going to be a welfare check that shows up. There's not going to be, uh, what are you going to do? Well, you have the option of going and for a period of time, say, going to a, to a man who has means to pay your debts and to pay you while you live to keep you alive, to feed you, house you, clothe you, and say, let's make this exchange. I'm in terrible debt. Can I serve you for six years? And at the end of it, I get to go free and my debts will be paid. Is that horrific? I don't think so for that man. I don't think so for that man. I thought long and hard about parallels in our culture right now. And there are many, many parallels in our culture where... uh, Compared to many of the things that happen, this would be a preference. So that's another difference, right? It's, it's this kind of debt slavery. And after six years, you get to go free. The contract is done. Your debt has been paid. You're, you're set to go. And, and thirdly, if you entered uh, your slavery with a wife, you'd get to leave with her when you were done. But if the master provided you a wife, if you came in single, the master provided you a wife, then you're left with a, with a quandary because, because the, he's the one who provided you the wife. He provided your family. He paid for everything. He provided her. And so that leaves you in a quandary when you're done, right? Are you going to leave? Uh, without your wife and without your kids? Well, probably not. So if you decided to stay, 
probably because of your family or because you had a really great master and this worked out pretty well and you had already trashed your life. You had already ruined your, your, uh, your financial opportunities. You know, you've got a bad track record already or whatever. Life, life with this master under these conditions, you're working for him and he's paying you. It might be better than what it was before and you might actually love this man and he might actually be kind to you and he might actually take care of you. And so you have the option of staying. And, and so that option, of course, involves this ceremony with having it all driven through your ear, right? And you're declaring basically that you would, you would rather serve your master forever from your own free will than to go back out to the way things were before. So if you understand the economic conditions and you understand the distinctions between this kind of slavery versus the slavery they had been in in Egypt, and you understand the differences between the kind of slavery we have in our minds when we think of, of, uh, of, of slavery in the United States and our history, and by the way, it's slavery that happens in a lot of part of the world right now, there are vast differences. And though it seems incredible to us that they would want to continue any form of slavery at all, after what they had experienced in Egypt, God sets up rules for how slavery in Israel was to be done. It was done this way. Even this is a means of provision. It's a means of protection. Our society recognizes that we need to protect and provide for people who are extremely poor. They lack something in their character makeup or or in, in uh, I don't know, skills, I don't know, to be able to provide for themselves. Our society has a way of providing for those people, and so did this one. And these men were to be kind. These masters were to take care of them. This was not chattel slavery. Uh, this was a debt slavery, something that could be paid off and done when it was over if you wanted it to. It's very different from the slavery they had known in Egypt. Well, that's the, that's the easier of the two hardest passages. Now let's look at the hardest one. The very next paragraph uh, in chapter 21, verses 7 through 11, continues on this same idea. The first one started, you know, when, it, when you buy a Hebrew slave, then there's a whole, whole discussion. Look at verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, I'm pretty sure I have as many daughters as anyone else in here. I feel that as deeply as anybody. Well, let's start with our eyes open. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So at the end of the period of time, she's not going to be set free in the same way. Different, different rule structure. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not uh, do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So she's to be set free. So how do we think about this? Well, if you're like me, you think about it long and hard to understand. Understand what's going on in this passage. So we've got the same circumstances. You've got a family, a very poor family, and they've got a daughter. How do they do this? How do they proceed? Apparently, it was a legitimate option to find the right kind of man and make some financial transaction so that he ends up with your daughter and you end up with some money. That sounds horrific or that sounds like a Jane Austen novel. Just saying. Yeah, I have daughters, so uh, we, 
I've seen a lot of Jane Austen novels and, and, uh, and movies, and I've read a few. And, and uh, what's the plot? Poor family, lots of daughters. How, how are they going to make it in life? How are they going to make it in life? They've got to find a way to marry her off well. All right, that's the basic plot of so many of these things, right? Well, this is, this is different terminology, but I think it's a similar context. It's a similar thing that's going on is that the daughter, if she's in this home of this man who's ruined his life, right? He can't pay the bills. His, everything has failed. He's in debt. What's he going to do with his daughter? What are the chances he's going to provide well for his daughter under those circumstances? He can't even provide for himself. He's, he's debating selling himself into slavery. And maybe he already did. I don't know. And so he thinks, if I can find the right man, the right man who is wealthy, wealthy enough to make this financial transaction and who will take care of her. Maybe that's a better deal. That's, that's very harsh language. We don't talk this way. We don't do this. Praise the Lord, we don't do this. But God is arranging provision for this young woman. So imagine you're the, you're the young woman. You would, you would grow up destitute. You're, you're, you're vulnerable to sickness, disease, starvation, all of that stuff because of the way you're, 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 you're uh, being raised. Your life will probably be shortened. And you will know your parents love you. And it will be a difficult life. Maybe they were looking for a situation where they could find someone to take care of her. So that she would be well taken care of. This isn't a deal so that dad can get rich. This is a deal so that the family can continue and survive and thrive and the daughter can continue and survive and thrive. There's protection involved in this. First of all, you know, the dad, dad didn't just have to sell her to anybody, of course. This is something he's deciding to do. But you'll also notice that there are protections in there, right? That, uh, he, if, if she doesn't please the master that she goes to, and by the way, she might have been his wife or his concubine, but if she doesn't please his master for one reason or another and he just wants to get rid of her, he does not have the option to sell her to a foreigner who might treat her as a chattel slave. He doesn't have that option. That option is off of the table. He's not able to do that. And by the way, to get a, a peek into how he is to look at this daughter, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. So maybe he didn't get her for himself, but for his son... He's to treat her like a daughter. That's the way he's supposed to treat her. And by the way, if, if uh, the man takes on another wife and he likes this other wife more, he's not allowed to decrease the lifestyle that this woman that we're talking about here has, has become accustomed to. So she's protected. This is, this is harsh stuff. This is very raw. This isn't polished and like our society. But the long and the short of it is this is a provision for this young woman. And protection... There are things put into place to protect and to provide for this young woman. That's a very difficult passage, but I, I think that's what, it's, that's what it's saying, is when you set up this new society, absolutely every aspect of it is to be gracious, is to provide, is to protect the weak, is to, uh, to do justice and to be merciful and to honor God. That's what's going on. In this passage, it's a difficult passage to understand. But that brings us to our points of application. Some of these passages present us with a dilemma. 
Okay? These, pass- these two passages particularly present us with a dilemma. First of all, will we sit in judgment over God's word? This is, after all, the word of God. So will we sit in judgment over it? And as we talked about in Sunday school, make it measure up to some standard we have. Is that what we're going to do? That's an option. That's a temptation. And when you look through various scholars, that's the direction they go. Does God's word have to measure up to our human moral standards? So that's, that's one option. Another option. Or do we have to just take what it says without being able to ask any questions? Or probe more deeply into what's going on? That's a temptation. And that's a temptation a lot of Christians have when they run across a difficult passage. This is a very difficult passage. And when they run across that, what do they want to do? Skip over it. They hear that in their minds and they go on. They don't even interact with what's actually there. I don't think that's a viable option either. I think the uh, third option is the best. This is God's word. It is good. It is eternal. And it is infallible. It is breathed out by God himself. But that doesn't mean we can't ask questions of what is there. On the contrary, if God has spoken to us in his word as the only infallible guide to faith and practice, and God has spoken to us in his word as the only infallible guide to faith and practice, the only one, then we have a responsibility to examine it. We need to work to understand it the way God intended it. We must not be afraid to examine God's word closely to rightly divide it. And so to that end, by the way, we have a Sunday school class going starting in, uh, on the 25th of June, that's going to be how to study your Bible, right? And I challenge you, whoever's teaching, bring up this, you know, passage and have them, have them show you how to, how to study it, how to understand it. I'll be one of those teachers sometimes, so please don't do that when I'm the one teaching. I've, I've already had my shot, right? But to, it's to teach us how to study the Bible, how to find out what is really here, how to understand what God has said to us and discern what God has not said to us in His Word and what's just thoughts in our brains. So we want to be like the Bereans who study the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's the first point of application. Look at the word. Ask hard questions of the word. We don't sit over the word. We are not the standard. Our morality is not the standard. This tells us what God's standard is. But we can ask questions. And I challenge you and encourage you, ask harder questions of the Bible. Don't be afraid I may completely fail in answering a question. I may, have, I, I may have not understood this passage well, but the Bible can take the scrutiny. Second point of application. As we look at these laws as a whole, we see a society in which justice has been set forth and is to be protected. It's a just society. Thirdly, God was forming a society that provided for and protected the weak and the vulnerable. You see that in these passages. Fourthly, he was putting together a society designed to worship him and bring him glory. These were, uh, this was a special nation, a peculiar people whom God chose that he would show his glory to others through them, that all of the nations of the earth might be blessed. Fifthly, God was designing a society that had direction on how to deal with even extreme financial hardship. Hardship so extreme that selling oneself or one's daughter into slavery could somehow seem like a viable option. And at the same time, he gave specific instructions on how to treat the unfortunate. Sixthly, looking at this this section today, one of the things that's very difficult for us is that in the Bible, human freedom 
is not the highest value. Human freedom is not the highest value. We're in the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus clearly presents slavery and bondage for humans and the freedom of God and only of God. He's the one who says, I am who I am. He's the one who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be compassionate on whom I will be compassionate. There is only one being who is ultimately free, and that is God. It is not us. And so in the Bible, part of what's challenging about this, part of what's challenging about many of these difficult passages is that our freedom is not the highest value. I'm an American too. I'm an American too. I love liberty. My liberty is not the highest value. And so we have a couple of situations where we can't understand why people would give up their liberty. We can't understand why people would enter into a situation where they wouldn't get to call the shots. But if you remember the story about the slave who didn't want to leave his master, he chose slavery. He chose it the first time, and then he chose it again by saying, here, drive the all right through here, because I want to be your slave. And we are called to slavery, to Jesus. He sets us free from so many things. He sets us free from Egypt. He sets us free from sin, from, from, the, from the power of sin over us, from the penalty of sin in our lives and in the future. He sets, of, he sets us free in so many ways, but He does not set us free for the sake of setting us free. He sets us free from that so that we can be bond slaves to Jesus. Our freedom is not the highest value. God's freedom is. And I think that's part of what's being portrayed in these passages today. Well, you've, you've borne with me very patiently. I appreciate that. God's word is deep. Don't be scared off. Ask hard questions. I, I'm not done asking questions on this passage. We need to ask hard questions. But in the end, it is God who is the authority. He is the free one. I'm a slave anyway. I'm either a slave to sin or I'm a slave to righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I, I pray that you would make something useful out of our uh, possibly stumbling time going through these difficult passages. Some of them were very easy and straightforward and, and some were not. pray that you would be honored and I pray that we would see submission to you as a wonderful, valuable, the most valuable thing. That we would look to you and your freedom and that we would give you glory and we would submit, that we would gladly say that we are your servants, we are your slaves. I pray that for each of us. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.